Welcome to the Icelandic True Crimes podcast. My name is Margaret Björs and this is the podcast where you will get your weekly injection of Icelandic True Crimes. Some of these episodes may be of violent or disturbing nature, so I encourage you to skip ahead when needed. Also keep in mind that care and respect must be taken in coverage and discussion of sensitive cases. All show notes can be found on the website icelandictruecrimes.com. Let's dive in! In the last episode, I went over the background of Eyjólfur Jónsson and Juliana Silva Jónsdóttir, the siblings who play the key role in this case. When I left you at the end, Eyjólfur had died November 13, 1913, after 13 days of intense agony. News of Eyjólfur's death spread immediately, and rumors of how he was killed, along with all sorts of stories of his illness, death, and who might have poisoned him. His death seemed disturbing, and the fact that his poisoning was intentional got a lot of attention, since a long time had passed since a murder had been committed in Iceland. The day after Eyjólfur's death, when people got word of it, his sister Juliana went to the hospital Landakotspitali, along with her daughter Silva Brynhildur. There she asked the nurses about Eyjólfur's cause of death and to see his body, but was told she couldn't see it until later. They did not tell her that Eyjólfur's body had been sent for autopsy. However, regarding his cause of death, the nurses advised Juliana to ask the doctors. During the time Eyjólfur lay waiting for his death, Juliana never went to visit him, neither in Dukescot or at the hospital. But now I will go over the arrest of Juliana and Jón their trial and conviction carried out by the authorities. Let's deep dive into this case. The year is 1913. Let's imagine that we are present in Reykjavik at the time. Reykjavik had then become the capital city of Iceland, and no more than 12 to 13,000 people were living there. But the population of the city had doubled from the turn of the century. The city had been the headquarters of the National Board for nine years. It had had its own mayor for five years, and for about seven years the inhabitants of Reykjavik had had a telephone connection to the outside world. Three years had passed since the mineral oil lamps had been replaced with gas lights on the city streets, and the stream running from the Reykjavik pond into the sea, called Lækurinn, had been replaced by the street Lækjargata, deriving its name from that stream. Before that, Lækurinn had split Reykjavik city into the east and west banks. The Reykjavik harbor was being built, which joined these two city sections with the downtown area. The construction of the Reykjavik harbor and the other constructions produced employment, and the profits of Icelanders increased with the advent of trawlers and the marine industry, which was mostly based in Reykjavik at the time. Reykjavik was like a small fishing village. Despite the progress being made at this time, 
the public's conditions didn't improve, and the population of Reykjavik lived in small housings in extreme poverty. The number of houses didn't increase in accordance with the population growth, and therefore the public lived in small houses with a lot of rooms, and for example, families of five to six cooped up in one room with all their belongings. The worker's salary was low, but the buying power high, and the public therefore thought it pennies when walking between the shops to find goods cheaper than by the next traders. They drank a lot of black coffee, because milk was mainly unavailable, so their coffee and food was mostly dairy and sugar-free. Only one elementary school, Medbayerskolen, existed in Reykjavik, and children attending it came from all over the Reykjavik city area on foot, no matter how the weather was. The first university in Iceland, the University of Iceland or Hauskuli Islands, had been running for two years. But before that, Icelanders saw their university studies mostly in Denmark. In Denmark was also the Supreme Court, where cases were finalized, because Iceland was then still under the reign of the Danish kingdom. In Reykjavik, there was no police station, and the city sheriff, Jón Magnusson, also did the duties of the police commissioner's office, the criminal and civil court, and tax and customs administrations. The city sheriff Jón will come into play later in this episode. There was one pharmacy in Reykjavik, only a few doctors, and Landakotspitali was the only hospital in the city. Landakotspitali had been founded in 1902 by the St. Joseph sisters, who were Catholic nuns, and the hospital had been built with collected funds from Europe. Landakotspitali replaced the old hospital, today called Farsotarhuset, or the Epidemic House and is located in the street Thinkolstræti. Sanitation had improved with the advent of the domestic water system and sewers, but until then, open gutters handled the entire city's sewage. Nowadays, monumental traces of these gutters are located in the sidewalks of the street Østestræti, in remembrance of where these gutters had previously been. No streets in Reykjavik had yet been paved, except Østestræti, which had been paved in the summer of 1913. It was difficult to get around the city streets unless people wore rain boots, since they sometimes had to wade through mud up to their knees. The first car came to Iceland that same year, but due to streets being unpaved in Reykjavik, the Icelandic horse was still the main transportation, and there was no way for cars to get around the city in mud. An Icelandic poet at the time, Einar Kvaran, was quoted saying, that Reykjavik should be called the Rain Boot City. In fact, Reykjavik at the time can be likened to modern refugee camps, poor people from the countryside flocking in groups to the city in hopes of better earnings, but instead entered even more poverty and the crime rate increased. But now, back to the case of Eyjolfur and Juliana. When Eyjolfur passed away, Thursday, November 13th, the Reykjavik city sheriff, Jón Magnusson, was reported on the suspicion of the district doctor Jón Hjaltalín Sigurdsson that Eyjólfur had been poisoned. Everything about Eyjólfur's illness and death indicated phosphorus poisoning, and the district doctor Jón believed that his death was undoubtedly caused by phosphorus and nothing else. Jón, the city sheriff, had Eyjólfur's body moved to the morgue at the old hospital in Thinkolstræti 
where Jon, the district doctor, was to perform his autopsy the day after, along with his surgeon general, Guðmundur Björnsson. In the following, I want to warn listeners of information they may find disturbing. In the surgeon general's report, it was stated that Eilver had physically been heavyset and medium built, as he had done jobs at sea and land that demanded physical strength. His skin was pale yellow, mostly in his face, which indicated liver failure. Phosphorus mainly attacks the liver, which finally caves. The back and his front were blue, and widely on his limbs, bluish spots could be seen. Nowhere could blood spots be found on his skin, but on both of his outer thighs were red dots from saline injection. From his right nostril and the right side of his mouth were streaks of hardened blood-stained saliva. The white parts of his eyes were yellowy bruised and his pupils even in size, but bigger than average. Within his lips, the mucous membrane was pale yellow but at no dark spots. His chest was beefy and well-built and his abdomen soft but not bloated. There were no signs of external trauma other than those mentioned on his thighs after he had been given the saline solution. They started to dissect Eolver's body. The scalp was split from ear to ear and the skin sculled of his skull back and forth. The skin's underside was light yellow with no spots. Thereupon, a cap was sawed from the top of the skull. The shell came slowly loose from the dura matter, which is the strong fiber which forms the protective sheath for the brain. The shell was moderately thick. The dura matter seemed to be normal in thickness and yellow in color. From the veins came a considerable amount of thin and dark red blood. On the front of the head's high point was a large, darkest blood stain, and elsewhere similar spot were noticed. In the interior, the dura matter looked shiny, and there the blood stains previously mentioned could also be seen. By the longitudinal gap, on the brain's left side, or five centimeters behind the blood stain, a slightly soft accretion was noticed between the dura matter and the brain. The pia matter, or the delicate innermost layer of the brain and spinal cord, was thin and shiny, and had rather much blood in its veins. Next, the brain was taken out of the skull. No abnormalities were seen in the arteries of the pia matter and in the side cavity of the brain was no fluid present. The cerebral cortex in the cerebrum, or the outer layer of the neural tissue of the cerebrum of the brain, was very pale colored, and its gray tissue was unusually light in color. The same thing was to say about the medulla oblongata, or the long stem-like structure which makes a part of the brainstem. However, in the cerebellum, its gray tissue was clearly darker, the pia matter came smoothly off the brain, and in the veins of the cranial base, a considerable amount of non-coagulated and thick dark blood. Now, an incision was made lengthwise from the jugular area down to the pubic bone, from the sternum towards the abdominal muscles. There was no abnormal odor from the abdominal cavity, and no layers were seen. The peritoneum was smooth, shiny, and yellow-gray. No blood spots were found. The inner layer was thin and red. Of the longitudinal incision, skin and flesh was flayed from the chest and the ribs cut apart. The sternum was lifted up and removed from the collarbones. When the pericardium was opened, or double-walled sac containing the heart, 
It contained approximately 30 cubic centimeters of red-yellow fluid. The heart was relatively large and rather soft. On the outside, mostly from the top and along the blood vessels, small dark speckles the size of pinheads were noticed, but also smaller and bigger ones. The heart was taken out. The cardiac muscle was smooth, with an unexplained red-gray color, but rather soft to the touch. In the heart chambers was a moderate amount of semi-cluttered blood, and all valves and openings were whole. Inside the heart, a few small dark red speckles were found, and when they were cut apart, bloodshot spots were seen. The gallbladder was properly sized, and inside was a little of a dark thin pile. The duodenum was removed, and left and opened in a glass jar for further investigation. The right and left kidneys were rather large in size, soft, pink, and generally pale. But their layer was thicker than normal and the tissue weak and soft. The cones were darker than the layer and the bone muscles pinkish gray where they were cut. Some of Eilver's organs were sent to the lab for a chemical analysis and there a distinctive poisoning was diagnosed in his whole body. The 35 grams of rat poison Julian had bought at the pharmacy contained 0.7 grams or 2% of phosphorus. Aylver had therefore been given about 70 centigrams of phosphorus. 10 centigrams are a lethal dose and therefore the jar contained a sevenfold fatal dose. It was ruled that Aylver's cause of death was phosphorus poisoning, which explained why the vomit he threw up the first night had looked as if glowing in the dark. To explain the effects of phosphorus poisoning, I will read you this. After the body has taken in a fatal amount of phosphorus, begins a war with death in three stages. The first stage is the first day. Either no symptoms will be noticed, or symptoms of indigestion, such as vomiting or diarrhea, will occur. The second stage is on the second and third day, and then the liver will likely respond to the poisoning, but the patient may not show any external symptoms. Those symptoms may include liver failure, clotting problems, acute tubular necrosis in the kidneys, or psychosis. The third stage is the countdown to death. In the district doctor's description of the progress of Eilver's illness, he wrote that when he first attended Eilver in Dukescott, the fifth day after he'd eaten the poisoned skir, Eilver had complained of an uncomfortable and continuous pain under his chest area. The pain had started the evening before and worsened if he ate. He had no appetite and had no heartburn, nor was he vomiting, but still felt a little nauseous. He felt he had very little energy. Eilver told Dion, the district doctor, that around 11 p.m. in the evening of Saturday, November 1st, he had quickly become ill, vomited constantly and had felt a burning pain under his chest area, and that earlier that day, he had eaten skir at his sister's Juliana. Eilver suggested that something might have been put in the skir. The next day on Sunday, he had been up on his feet, and Monday and Tuesday he had gone to work. Jon, the district doctor, took Eilver's temperature, but he was without a fever and his pulse was good. He heard nothing abnormal in Eilver's heart and lungs. And when he felt for the liver, it had not become larger. No yellow color was noticed in Eilver's skin, 
but a little tenderness when Jon pressed the abdomen. It felt normal and soft to the touch, but the tongue had a slight grey film. Otherwise, there was no redness or sores in his mouth or throat. On the sixth day, Thursday, November 6th, the pain had reduced and Eolver had been a little up on his feet late in the morning. In the evening, the household noticed blood in his stool when throwing it out. On Friday, November 7th, the pain was more on the right side under his chest, and Jon, the district doctor, found the liver had enlarged. Eilver had not been vomiting more, nor felt tender in the gallbladder, which had not grown bigger. No yellow color was noticed in his skin, nor a fever, and his pulse was normal. On Saturday, November 8th, Jon, the district doctor, started noticing Eilver's eyes had become yellow and that his temperature had risen by 8 points in Celsius. The pulse was still normal and good. The next day, Eilver was unchanged, but the yellow color had increased. On the 10th day, Monday, November 10th, Eilver's energy constantly lowered and he didn't speak by default. He lay mostly motionless and semi-conscious, without complaining of any pain, but answered or moved when spoken to. The yellow color in his skin had increased. His respiration was light and regular, and the pulse was strong. There was no blood in his spit, nor did he have a fever. The next day, Tuesday, November 11th, Eilver was transferred to the hospital Lantakotspitali at the request of Jon, the district doctor. He had then become unconscious and didn't respond when spoken to. The yellow in his skin wasn't changed, and the pulse was low and irregular in the morning, but improved slightly as the day went by. In the afternoon, Eilver asked for a drink, but drank very little. On the twelfth day, Wednesday, November 12th, Eilver lay completely unconscious throughout the day, bright yellow in color. He had no stools, despite an enema had been installed, and he had a lot of urine, which contained a little albumen, but with no traces of blood in it. The next day, Thursday, November 13th, his loss of consciousness increased. His pupils had enlarged and responded to light, but it had become harder for him to breathe. His chest rattled as the day passed until he passed away in the afternoon. The same day Eilver's autopsy took place, Friday, November 14th, the police launched an investigation into his death, and the day after, they continued gathering more information. How do you like what you've heard so far? If you want to listen to upcoming episodes of Icelandic True Crimes, click subscribe to be notified of new episodes. By doing so, you are also supporting the Icelandic True Crimes podcast. This podcast is made possible by listeners like you, so thank you for the support. The podcast can be found on social media and on the website icelandictruecrimes.com. You can find additional information in this episode's show notes. Now let's continue with the show. The day after Eilver's death, Friday, November 14th, rumors spread of his illness throughout the city, and the newspapers Visir and Morgenbladet first reported his death. In Morgenbladet, this was said. Here died a man at the hospital yesterday who was named Eilver Jonsson. 
Rumors have spread that he died of poison, which had been put in his food. Yesterday, it was said, there was something strange about his death, as shortly after the man's death, the city sheriff ordered the body to be taken from the hospital and to the morgue at the old hospital in Tinkelstrete. There, the body underwent an autopsy by the doctors, but they are currently unavailable to give any information to others on this and only to the city sheriff. About 6 p.m. on a Saturday evening, November 15th, the police officers Thorvaldur Björnsson, nicknamed Valle Pol, and Sigurdur Peterson went to the home of Juliana in the basement of Brekkustigur 14. They told her she was arrested on the suspicion of murdering her brother Eolvur, and Juliana broke down in tears, crying. But Jón, her partner, was mostly quiet and laughed, and he told the police officers they were making a huge mistake. On the upper floor of the house lived the sailor Haukon Grimson with his family, and they were put up to take in Juliana's daughter, Silva Brynhildur, temporary. Silva Brynhildur was then seven years old and was described as a pretty child with blonde hair and blue eyes. She did not seem to be aware of what was happening, but she was to be in this family's care until the police could find her another home. When the police officers led Juliana down the hill through the downtown area of Reykjavik towards the penitentiary called Hekningarhuset, it caught people's attention since Juliana cried out incessantly. In Hekningarhuset, the police court of Reykjavik was set at 10 p.m. that night, held by the city sheriff Jón Magnusson with the police officers Thorvaldur and Sigurdur as witnesses. Juliana immediately confessed to poisoning Eilver by putting it into the skier he had eaten and therefore caused his death. Juliana explained that she and her partner Jón had had a disagreement with Eilver and that he had accused them of stealing a promissory note from him. The siblings had then threatened each other, and Jón and Eilver gotten into a fight where Eilver had beaten Juliana. Since that occurrence, Jón had often encouraged her to do away with Eilver, both by revenge and because then she would inherit her brother's possessions. Juliana and her three sisters were meant to inherit their brother, who was thought of to be well off. She said Jón had not been home when she poisoned Eolver, but that Jón had encouraged her in the morning to do it, and Jón was therefore an accessory to the crime. But after Eolver had finished eating the skir, she had given him a lot of coffee with brennivin in it, the Icelandic snaps, in hope of him throwing up the poison. During the hearing of Juliana, she cried profusely and seemed sick, so Jón the district doctor was fetched. To him, she seemed miserable and showed all the signs of regret. It was not possible to finish the hearing of Juliana at the time. After Juliana's confession, the police officers were sent back to Brekkustigur 14 to get Jón. He had gone to sleep, but just before midnight they arrested him and took him to Hagningarhuset, where he was put into custody. Jón pretended to not know anything of Juliana's plan to murder her brother, or why he was being arrested. He immediately refused to have taken any part in the case. During the night, Juliana told the prison guards that she had been suffering from heart disease and been nervous since her husband Magnus passed away, and later in the trial, her testimony was confirmed by other witnesses. Juliana was taken for a psychiatric evaluation by psychiatrist Thorder Svensson at the mental hospital Klepper. 
There she was under his supervision until March 12th, the year after. In his report, Thorder stated he could not find any symptoms of her having or previously having had any mental problems. According to him, she had an insane reasoning and he felt it was fully proven that she had intentionally killed Eilver and was therefore of sound mind. But on Monday, November 17th, two days after the arrest of Julian and Jón, the police court of Reykjavik was set and held by the city sheriff Jón Magnusson, with the head customs officer Grimulvur Hermonis Olafsson and the police officer Runolvur Pietersson as witnesses. The trial over Jón continued, and their suspicion was that Jón had known of Juliana's plan to poison Eilver, and that he had even encouraged her. The married couple Magnus and Inkun, the landlords of Eilver in Dukskot, were led to testify in the case. They said they had not known Eilver before he started renting in Dukskot the past fall, and that Eilver had gone to Reykjadalur in Hrunamannarreppur to work over the summer. He had come back on September 5th, and then started renting in Dukskot. Ingun told the court that Eilver had told her that Jón had been home when Eilver visited Juliana and ate the skir. But as Juliana brought Eilver the bowl, Jón left, saying he was going to see his brother. She also said that Eilver had found it suspicious at the time. This contradicted what Jón himself had told the court, but he had said he'd gone off to work in the morning and not been home until after Eilver was gone. Hjörleifur Jónsson and Guðmundur Arnarsson, who were also renters in Dukskot and had gone with Eilver to get his coffin from Juliana, were also led to testify. Hjörleifur, who was also Ingun's brother, said Eilver had told him, on Sunday, November 2nd, that he had been throwing up all night after eating skir his sister had given him the day before. Hjörleifur and Guðmundur had nothing more to add. The trial continued on Wednesday, November 19th. The police officers Thorvaldur Björnsson and Jonas Jonasson were witnesses in the trial held by the city sheriff Jón. Jón, the city sheriff, had them bring Jón out of his cellar and back to court. Jón kept stating he had not known anything of Juliana's plans, nor being conniv with her. Furthermore, he said he had prevented her from killing herself the winter before, when she either tried or talked of going into the sea. She had sometimes been, as he stated, sick in her mind and had episodes and been ill because of her heart problems, but that in between she was a decent person. He said that in the fall, a disagreement had come up between the siblings and that Juliana had from that time thought of killing Eilver, but that Jón had tried to talk her out of that thought. He told the court he knew nothing about the rat poison Juliana had bought. The court thought Jón's testimony was rather untrustworthy and that he was inconsistent with himself. So Jón, the city sheriff, had the police officers take Jón to the morgue where Eilver's body lay on the autopsy table. There, he had Jón hold his hand over Eilver's chest and asked if he dared to refuse to be in contact with Juliana or to have knowledge of her plans. But Jón swore he was innocent. It was not mentioned if Jón had been startled by this, but during the hearings and the trial, Jón sometimes seemed as if he wasn't being rational, whether he was faking it or not. The court mentioned that due to Juliana being ill and it not being safe to let her get back on her feet, she was not to be trialed for the time being. Around the year 1900, 
the foreign press began to sensationalize their news reports, and large headlines started appearing in the press. An intense competition started between the newspapers. A great deal of the news was reports of murders, crimes, and other tragedies, and the media attempted to appeal to the public's emotions based on prejudice and fear. In Iceland, reports of crime had always been covered in short and dry articles in the press, but in 1913, the newspaper Morgenbladet was founded on November 2nd, two weeks before Eyjolfur's death, and was issued seven days a week. The paper made an attempt to sensationalize its news articles, as the foreign press was doing, and started with the murder of Eyjolfur. On Monday, November 17th, four days after the death of Eyjolfur, Morgenbladet published a cover story with the headline A Brother Murder in Reykjavik, and began the story so The awful event has happened in this town, which is at its own, even in the chronicles of Reykjavik or the country, though beyond the sod. A murder by intent has not been heard of in this town as long as we can remember. On the front page was an image of Dukskot, and on the next page an image of the living room where Eyjolfur had laid while battling his illness. The image of Dukskot was the first domestic news image to appear in an Icelandic newspaper, but that image is a lot more known than the first news image to appear in an Icelandic newspaper back in 1906, which was a drawing of Frederick VIII, the then discrowned king of Denmark and Iceland, and had that image been obtained from a Danish newspaper. But on Tuesday, November 18th, Morgenbladet continued with its great sensationalism. How horrible does this word sound in your ears? Murder, murder, murdering their own brother by poisoning. On the other hand, love for a brother, gentle and childlike, and a good existence among siblings. But on the other hand, the hate, burning hot and passionately, or worse, the ice-cold apathy against the brother, and an unlimited desire for money. In their veins, one and the same blood, they have in their childhood rested on each other's breasts, blissful and happy, for their existence and sibling love. Their mother lays their blessing on both of them as they move from home, and in their years send her last words, love each other. But then that star falls. In that same article, Morgenblad states that Juliana has survived the changes of life and that she was a loose woman, meaning promiscuous, because she had had a child in an affair while married to Magnus, and is it being referred to her then seven-year-old daughter Silva Brynhildur. In addition, it was said that she had for a time lived with the sailor Hannes Hansson before she left him for Jón, her now partner. I must say from my own personal opinion that Morgenblade was being very prejudiced and critical, but it was also describing her as a passionate prostitute and for a time fond of drinking, though never too much, but had always been very temperamental. They also stated that Jón was also fond of drinking. On the next pages were images of the siblings Juliana and Eyjolfur. It was remarkable how the imagery was immediately used in a meaningful way. Detailed descriptions of events followed, 
and all the key personas were identified. This coverage of the murder, and especially the naming of the siblings, got a bad response of the public. People became very mad and offended, and the phone of Wilhelm Finsen, the editor of Morgenbladet, was ringing constantly all day. They even made calls to his wife, and asked her to influence him for the better. Wilhelmer himself later wrote in his memoir that people had told him off like a dog. This led to him being forced to stop reporting on crime in Morgenblith, at least temporarily. The Icelandic public was at the time not ready for such an extensively open and personal reporting of crimes, unlike nowadays. The images published by Morgenblith were linocuts, made by a Danish man named Bang, who was then the director of the only movie theater in Reykjavik, called Niabio. There was no technology in Iceland for photo engraving, and Árni Óla, a journalist at Morgunblaðið, went to Dukescott and made sketches of it, inside and out. Then Bang, the movie theater director, cut out the images from the sketches. A lino cut is a printmaking technique, a variant of woodcut in which a sheet of linoleum is used to transfer an image on paper. A photograph was obtained of Juliana, but they had no photo of Eilver. The journalist Árni Óla thought he remembered seeing Eilver once, and from his memory made a sketch of him, which Bang the movie theater director then used. However, the day the image was published in a news article, the journalist Árni Óla was walking on the main street and saw the man he had before thought to be Eilver, well, alive. After a lot of searching, I have found the original photograph of Juliana, which they used to make the linocut, and has that photograph never been published before, when this case has been covered. Along with other photographs of Juliana, I have added them to this episode's show notes on the website icelandictruecrimes.com. On Friday, November 21st, Eilver was laid to rest from the Reykjavik Cathedral, called Domkirkjan, by Father Bjarni Jonsson. Among those who were mentioned to have attended his funeral were the city sheriff Jón Magnusson, the public health inspector Árni Einarsson, Father Jón Thorkelsson, and Ólafur Björnsson, the other founding member of Morgenbladet and editor of the newspaper Isafold. In the crowded church, Eilver was described as a diligent man, and then after the scriptures, Father Bjarni said, Let him who is without sin cast the first stone, and then continued, Let this event arouse sobriety and grief. It is to wake up the true compassion within us. But the thought of it should also arouse intent. Now we are to decide among ourselves to help and care for others, banish the dark and bear the sunshine with us. Let's all pray for all the relatives of the deceased. The Christian Church does not forget the wretched ones. After he had spoken, the crowd was silent. The people were clearly moved by his words and came to when Eilver's friends stood up from their seats to carry his coffin. First in the row, carrying the coffin, was a sailor Hannes Hansson, the former partner of Juliana, as he had been a good friend of Eilver. The coffin was carried out of the church and to the cemetery called Hólavallagarður, but at the time it was rare to see the deceased carried to Hólavallagarður from the church. Eilver was buried with the crowd gathered. 
Today it is not known where Eilver's grave is located in Hólavallagarður, since at the time it was not recorded in the church register. The morning after Eilver's funeral, Morgunblaðið wrote, Centrally in front of the altar stood his coffin, painted black with silver ornaments on the sides, and two garlands lay on top made of red artificial roses. In the front row sat Eilver's friends, those who had carried him into the church, but bilaterally sat women in rows, some with white handkerchiefs before their eyes. Arne Ola, the journalist from Morgenbladet, also attended the funeral and wrote this description. On the Monday after the funeral, November 24th, the trial over Juliana and Jón was hastened. Juliana's confession was thought of as outspoken, and she did not seem to try to conceal anything nor embellish what she had done. She was the only one to tell of Jón's part in planning Eilver's death. But otherwise, the testimony corresponded with all reports and information on the case. The secondary court was set in the police court of Reykjavík the next year, on April 24th. The city sheriff Jón Magnusson was the judge, and his co-judges were the merchant Benedict Thorensson, the mayor Paul Einarsson, the engineer Knut Simpson, and the school director Paul Haldorsson. The prosecutor was Eckert Klassen. The superior attorney Magnus Sigurdsson was appointed to Juliana's defender, and the superior attorney Abdur Gislason was appointed Jón's defender. Juliana, who said she had murdered Eilver by Jón's encouragement, was indicted for murder under the 191st article of the Criminal Code of June 25, 1869. Whoever takes another man's life deliberately has forfeited their life. She was therefore sentenced to death and to pay all the costs of the accused, including the 20 kroner commission to her defender. Jón was indicted for manslaughter or involvement in it under the 110th article of the criminal code. But since it was not possible to prove his guilt in the case, he was to be acquitted of the indictment and it was adjudicated that the 20 kroner commission to his defender was to be paid from the public funds. After the court had given its ruling, Jón was to be released from custody as Juliana's testimony was not enough to rely on, and there was no other evidence to support that Jón was an accessory to the crime. But the prosecutor Eckert Klassen appealed the ruling of both Julian and Jón to the national authorities, so that Jón could not be released immediately. A few days later, the newspaper Lögretta wrote, It may though be assumed, a pardon will be given by the king, for it is the opinion of many that the death penalty should preferably not exist in law. Many believed that Jón had in fact encouraged Juliana to carry out the murder and that he therefore deserved full punishment. In the appeal of the case at the National Court, Sunday June 15th the same year, Eckert Klassen said that since this was the case of a brother murder, the crime had been carried out in cold blood and therefore it was clear that Juliana's inner instinct was of a criminal, even though her surface seemed soft. It was said to be very unlikely that she was not telling the truth of Jón's involvement in the case, but admittedly it could be said that the person who murders their own brother in cold blood was capable of lying about this. It was also believable 
if she had hated Jon and had been exposed of abating her crime. But it was clear by then that Juliana did not feel hatred towards Jon, and that she had not, even the slightest, tried to embellish her crime. The fact that she had poisoned her brother seemed to have been caused by Jon's encouragement, so he could acquire Eilr's possessions, which Juliana was to inherit. Jon knew that if she did, he would also benefit from it. Just like Jon had tried before to convince Hannes Hansson, Juliana's former partner, to wave his house in Bergstadsreite to Juliana. But those were her words against his, and therefore not fair to let her testimony convict Jon. However, the prosecutor Eckert Klassen wanted the trial court to confirm Juliana's punishment and Jon to be sentenced to the extreme penalty of the law as possible. Later that month, Otter Gislason, the defender of Jon, protested Eckert Klassen's prosecution and made the claims that the court would confirm Jon's innocence. Magnus Sigurdsson, the defender of Juliana, insisted her sentence would be changed and that she be given the most lenient punishment possible by the law. In the National Court on Monday, August 3rd, by the judges Jon Jensen and Haldur Danielsson, case number 26-1914 was reopened. Justice against Juliana Silva Jonsdottir and Jon Jonsson. The National Court confirmed the secondary court's sentence and was the case to be cited in the Supreme Court in Copenhagen, Denmark. Until then, Juliana was to be detained in Hackningarhuset. Later that same year, December 15, 1914, Jon was released from custody but taken straight to the Mantel Hospital Klepper to be placed for care. On February 17, 1915, the Supreme Court of Copenhagen confirmed the National Court's sentence. In addition to paying defenders Dietrichson and Lund 60 kroners each for their defense in the Supreme Court, Juliana Silva Jonsdottir, then 50 years old, was fully sentenced to death. This was the last death sentence to be ruled in Iceland, and Juliana was to be sailed to Copenhagen, where she would either be hanged or beheaded. But this case does not end there. This is the end of the second part of this case. Next week, the third and last part of this case comes out, but then I will go over the pursuit of Juliana's death penalty and the consequences of this case on its survivors. Thank you for listening to the Icelandic True Crimes podcast. You can find links and other sources mentioned in this episode's show notes on the website icelandictruecrimes.com. Subscribe on your favorite podcast app to be notified of new episodes and follow the show on social media. If you want to support this podcast, you can share it with your friends and leave a star and review so others can find it. Until next time, I encourage you to join the Icelandic True Crimes discussion group on Facebook, where we can discuss this case further along with other Icelandic crimes. Until then, see you there!